Chapter Nine, Part Two of the Making of a Nation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Making of a Nation: The Beginnings of Israel's History by Charles Foster Kent. Chapter Nine, Part Two. Moses's Relation to the Old Testament Laws. The Hebrew laws given in the Old Testament are generally known as the laws of Moses, and the assumption of many readers in earlier years has been that the different codes were practically formulated by Moses himself. The subsequent study of the Old Testament long ago suggested to many that this view may be mistaken. The oldest records of his work and the fact that, as creator of the Hebrew nation after the Exodus, and as leader and prophet be rendered important judicial decisions, have well justified the belief that he was the real founder of what is called the Mosaic Law. As stated in Exodus 18, he did actually formulate the principles by which decisions were made by the rulers whom he appointed, over thousands and over hundreds, fifties, and tens. He may have even put into form the principles found in the earliest decalogues. Moreover, as the Israelites in their later history were led to formulate new rules of action, they based these upon the principles of justice, religion, and civil equality found in the earlier decalogues. While the specific rules of living must have changed materially, as the Israelites changed their habits of living from those of wanderers in the wilderness to those adapted to their early settlements in Canaan, and afterward to the settled conditions under the monarchy, they would still base their laws upon these earlier principles. Hence it was not unnatural to ascribe the origin of these laws to Moses, nor is it today inaccurate to speak of them as the Mosaic Code, even though they may have been put into their present form at different periods remote from one another, and by rulers, prophets, and priests, whose occupations and attitude toward life were widely different. Back of practically all these laws are the fundamental beliefs that the Israelites are the people chosen of God, that to him they owe allegiance, and that from him they derive, in principle at least, the laws under which they live. The Development of Modern Law Not merely the Hebrews, but practically all ancient nations ascribe the origin of their laws either to a deity or to some great ancestral hero. As already noted, the Code of Hammurabi is represented as having been given to him directly by the god Shamash. In the early days of Greek history, the laws of Solon and Draco were formulated. In India we find the laws of Manu, in China the teachings of Confucius, and so on throughout all of the great nations. In some instances, doubtless many of the laws were actually formulated under the direction of the person to whom they are ascribed. But in many others, as perhaps in the case of the Mosaic Code, there was some great judge or king under whose direction certain principles were laid down and simple laws or precedents established. And as a result, all later developments were ascribed to him. In modern times, when legislative bodies are found in limited monarchies as well as in republics, the methods of legislation are necessarily different. Although chosen bodies of men come together to legislate for the benefit of society, as represented by the state, there is still a normal tendency for the ruling class to feel that it is to a great extent the state, and it does not forget its own needs. This class legislation was doubtless existent, 
to a certain extent even when the laws supposed to be of divine origin were formulated by prophets and priests for the real public character of the laws was dependent primarily upon the unselfish beliefs social and religious of the writers whether kings or priests no one is able to free himself entirely from the influence of class prejudice like the legislatures the courts even are also the product of their times though naturally conservative no law can long exactly fit changing conditions the judge must adapt a law made by one generation to the needs of the next in so doing he bends it to suit his times and to further the welfare of his state if aeroplanes carrying goods from pennsylvania to new york over the state of new jersey let them fall and damage the property of a resident of new jersey can our courts invoke the interstate commerce law made before aeroplanes were invented and yet there has been throughout the individual history of each nation a gradual improvement in the living conditions of the masses of people even in the tribal state as it proved more profitable to preserve a worker than to kill him captives in war were not slain but enslaved as society became more settled the custom of personally avenging one's wrong by slaying an enemy was modified cities of refuge were established where innocent victims might escape the avengers all down through the ages there has been a growing tendency to adapt the punishment to the crime to temper justice with mercy to realize that the aim of all law is not vengeance or punishment but the promotion of the best interests of society through the wise administration of justice the attitude of the citizens toward the law among savages as has been said there is no formulation of law there is the instinct of the individual to preserve his own life and there are rules that must be followed if the people are to survive as has been truly said the love of justice is simply in the majority of men the fear of suffering injustice the instinct of preservation and sheer necessity compel the people almost unconsciously to follow the rules of their leader in most patriarchal societies the fear of the god of the tribe the overpowering influence of custom and the unswerving directness of the punishment of the man who violates it tend to prevent the development of individuality and of independent thinking and the normal attitude of practically every person is to obey the customs and the laws although often those laws leave to the individual a range of action not found in later civilized states but as the sense of right and justice and the desire to promote the public welfare grow individualism grows also each individual thrown upon his own resources learns to think and question and judge in democratic states he learns to take upon himself the responsibility for his acts and at length the view becomes prevalent that law exists for the benefit of society the individual, in judging himself and his attitude towards society, feels that the law must be obeyed because obedience promotes the public welfare. Even when he believes that a law is unwise or even unjust, he hesitates to violate it, not only because he might be punished, therefore, but primarily because it has become wrong, according to his conscience, to violate a law that has been adopted by the representatives of his fellow-citizens as just and beneficial. Thus the individual, in later even more than in earlier times, obeys the laws not merely from selfish, but from social and religious motives. Questions for Further Consideration 
Can you name any modern laws that you think have been framed in the interests of a special social class? Do you think that the people of today are recreant in their respect for or adherence to law? What do you consider to be the value of such institutions as those at West Point and Annapolis in their influence on the enforcement of law and discipline? When we speak of government of the people, by the people, and for the people, whom exactly do we mean by people? Does the word have the same meaning in each of these phrases? Is it ever right to violate a law of the land? Some people contend that an individual ought to break a human law, provided that it is contrary to divine law. What is divine law? Who decides? Shall the individual decide, or is that the duty of the community, or of the clergy? Was it right for the abolitionists to violate the provisions of the fugitive slave law? Were this handful of men, able and conscientious as they were, as likely to be right regarding the welfare of society as the large majority of citizens whose representatives had enacted the fugitive slave law? If a person believes our tariff laws to be unjust, is it right for him to smuggle goods? Under what circumstances, if any, is it one's duty to disobey a law of the state? Would the fact that an individual believed it his duty to violate the law justify a judge in declining to punish him? Thoreau declined to pay a tax that he believed unjust and accepted his punishment, declaring that if he paid the penalty he might thus arouse public sentiment and secure the repeal of the law. Was John Brown justified in attempting illegally to free slaves by force of arms? In Great Britain, the House of Lords, one of the law-making bodies, is also the highest court of appeal. Although the judicial business is mostly done by law lords specially appointed for that purpose, ought the same men to make and interpret the law? Why? Subjects for further study. 1. Origin and Growth of Hebrew Law. Hastings, Dictionary of the Bible, 3, 64 through 67. Encyclopedia of the Bible, 3, 2714 through 8. Kent, Israel's Laws and Legal Precedents, 4, 8 through 15. 2. Growth of Primitive Law, Maine, Ancient Law, 109 through 165. Wilson, The State, 1 through 29. 3. Judicial Decisions as a Factor in the Development of Modern Law, Principles of Politics, Chapter 6, Ransom, Majority Rule and the Judiciary. 4. Compare the moral ideals of the Decalogue with those of present-day socialists. Cross, The Essentials of Socialism. Walling, Socialism as it is. Spargo, Elements of Socialism. End of Chapter 9, Part 2. Recording by Selena Arter.